Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Some of the sharpest wit in comic strips these days is women's work. Kathy Guy's White draws for every woman besieged by the colliding demands of bosses, boyfriends, and a mother who brandishes a copy of Brides magazine. Lynn Johnston forges her strip in the heat of domestic chaos. And in three short years, the Pattersons of For Better or For Worse have edged out the Bumsteads as the first family of the funnies. For more of the best work in cartoon humor, our men are making their own work. This was an ad that appeared in newspapers across the U.S. in 1982, advertising the two most prominent women working in comics at that time, Kathy of Kathy and Lynn Johnston of For Better or For Worse with the Universal Press Syndicate, one of the most popular comic pages of the day. Accompanying their pictures and sample comic strips, Kathy is shopping for a dress, Johnston's exhausted supermom Ellie Patterson is talking about birthday parties with her kids, and the men making their own mark? Yeah, that's a list of Universal Press Syndicate's other comic strips in 1982. 17 of them, all written by men. Representation win! 
Kathy was not the first woman to grace the pages of the funnies, far from it, but she was certainly held up with others as an example of feminism winning. As we discussed in the last episode, it, uh, wasn't. But what Kathy's success did demonstrate was that women writing about their own experiences was a winning formula after the women's liberation movement in the U.S. This opened doors for artists like Lynn Johnston and many others, a legacy that contributed to the semi-autobiographical comic work that's published in papers, but let's be honest, mostly online today. But it's not quite that simple. Women had been writing about their experiences long before Kathy. Their histories are present, but their work wasn't regarded with the same reverence that the infinity amounts of men in their midst were. And that's what we're exploring today. The women who laid the foundation for Kathy's work to thrive. The radical writers on the fringes working at the same time who were changing the game independently. And the people she shared the funny pages with. You mean the men I shared the pages with. Oh my god, Kathy. Well, yeah, like at first. I'm going to talk about the women that came later, too. Are you going to talk about Dilbert? I mean, as little as I possibly can, but Kathy, could you, like, give me a second? I can't leave until one of us says a pithy one-liner. Sorry, since I started doing the show, Kathy's just been, like, appearing to me like a sleep paralysis demon. I'll be falling asleep, and then, huh, there she is, two-dimensional at the end of my bed. And the dressing room at the mall, ah! Come on, Kathy, you're more than a dressing room gag. You're better than that. You're right. I'm working on it. Well, I think you're doing great. Sorry, everyone. I just need to, like, shut my eyes for a few seconds, and then she tends to disappear. Hi! Hi, hi! Hi, hi, hi! Kathy, please, I need to start the show. Okay. I think she's gone. This is Ack Cast. She burst into the world in 1976. She's at work, she's out on dates, and she don't like politics. From Mama and Irvin to her feminist friends. She's fighting all the stanzas with some chocolate in hand. Kathy, she's fighting back. Too stressed for success, let's cut her some slack. Oh, Kathy, my Kathy, fighting Kathy. She's got a lot going on. There's no doubt that women were always popular in the funny pages, which started around the turn of the 20th century. The thing is that these characters were overwhelmingly designed, written, and plotted out by men. When comics first came into newspapers in a big way in the early 1920s, characters like Winnie the Breadwinner by Martin Branner showed a young woman who worked to support her parents and adopted brothers. Characters like Little Orphan Annie by Harold Gray, one of the most successful comic strip characters ever, began as an anti-New Deal and anti-labor union propaganda character. That's right, Annie is a Jeff Bezos simp. It makes me sick. Blondie was launched in 1930 by cartoonist Chick Young, who'd gotten successful doing quote-unquote pretty girl comics like Beautiful Bab and Dumb Dora. Blondie is still in the papers today and began as a flapper girl who dates and marries industrial heir Dagwood. By the 1980s, here's how Blondie sounded in TV specials. Hi, honey. Well, Dagwood, Cora and I have just been to a wonderful seminar called How to Spend Quality Time with Your Husband. You don't say. Uh-huh. Now all I need is a quality husband to spend time with. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Some other classic comic strip women. Lois of High and Lois, created by a man. Betty Boop, definitely created by a man. Although, side note, the Betty Boop character was originally a black woman, but was pretty swiftly whitewashed once she began appearing in papers. The character Nancy, created by men. Broomhilda, created by a man. Betty, Veronica, man. And while some of these women and girls were funny and dynamic, Nancy was a trickster, Wonder Woman beat the hell out of people, many of the women who appeared in the funnies in this era were defined by their roles as wives, mothers, and girlfriends. Or the fact that they were not these things, as in early Winnie Winky strips, was the whole joke. They were all white, well, Broomhilda was green, and most were linked to men in the nuclear American home in some way. And again, comic books are out of my purview here, so we're sticking to the American newspaper pages. So yes, there were many women drawn on the pages, but rarely were they drawn by women. But that's not to say that women were completely absent from comic strips. Here are some of the creators who paved the way for our Kathy. Oh, and also... Who will not be speaking for a couple of minutes. Okay, like the messy and choppy American feminist movements we discussed last week, women's presence in the funny pages tended to fluctuate throughout the 20th century. And in its early years, women were relatively successful in the space. Some women were introduced into the industry by working on a team with their significant other. This was a pretty common practice in the creative arts in general, but others busted onto the scene completely on their own. Blondie is the most famous example, but flappers had a major presence in comics with creators who were women of the time as well. Cartoonist Ethel Hayes created Flapper Fanny in 1925, which cartoonist Gladys Parker took over later in its run. And Parker went on to launch her own clothing line and a brief career as a Hollywood costumer off of the strip's success. Ethel Parker also made a strip called Gay and Her Gang in 1928, and Anita Loos, who had already made history as the first woman to be a contracted screenwriter back in 1912, Titanic year, wrote the successful graphic novel Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which was later turned into the famous Marilyn Monroe vehicle. But the earliest ancestor I can find to a Kathy-style cartoon is an artist named Faye King. Faye King wasn't the first woman to become an editorial cartoonist in the U.S. That distinction belongs to Edwina Dumm, who became a full-time cartoonist in 1915. But King's style and references to her own life kind of remind me of a 1920s-era Kathy. King was born in 1889 in Portland, Oregon. She went to college. She was one of the first women to own a car in her area. And she had a highly publicized marriage and divorce with a famous Danish lightweight boxer. Say that five times fast. Oh my God. Famous Danish lightweight boxer. And she worked as a feature writer and cartoonist for a few different newspapers. Even more so than Kathy Geiswhite and the Kathy character, whose lives are tangentially related at best, Faye King was usually the main character in her comics, and she frequently made strips that featured herself and her husband, and later on, veiled commentary when that marriage ended. You know, the marriage to the famous Danish lightweight boxer. These depictions of her and the people in her life 
were not always flattering. We see Faye King drawn often as a nervous wreck and her husband as a bizarre macho womanizer. She was a flapper who, if you remember, was working at the height of the suffragette movement and with continued success after women's suffrage was granted in 1920. Here are some of the headlines that Faye King's work would generate in the 20s. Judge men by their past wives, Faye King advises flappers. Girls who marry guys twice their age would do well to consult other women they wooed, won, and then cast off. Women now read newspapers, Faye King observes. Wow! Unlike characters like Blondie, a flapper whose experience was manufactured by Chick Young, Faye King's flappers came from a personal place and were often just her life. In the 20s, King worked among a number of talented women, including illustrators like Nell Brinkley, Eleanor Shorer, Edith Stevens, Ethel Hayes, Dorothy Erfer, and Virginia Huget. Here's a quote from a comic historian and an artist in her own right so legendary that I've got an entire section on her later in this episode. Her name is Trina Robbins, and she literally wrote a book on this era in women's comics called The Flapper Women, Women Cartoonists of the Jazz Age. In an interview with Bust, she said this. There's this myth that women didn't draw comics or that they had to change their names. This is untrue. If you were good, they published you. Women were drawing comics and people loved them. Just as many women read newspapers as men, and the editors were smart enough to carry the strips the women liked. Nell Brinkley was a major leader in this time as well, creating the young, working, attractive suffragist illustrated ideal through a character style that became known as Brinkley Girls. And she wrote some of the most overtly feminist comic strips of the time. In a strip called Dimple's Daydreams, a flapper named Dimple would fantasize about becoming the president or an aviator or a chorus girl, things that weren't attainable at that time. Virginia Huget's work centered on girls from working-class backgrounds, and she made strips like Molly the Manicure Girl or Babs in Society, a strip about a shop girl who suddenly inherits a massive fortune. And what was more, this community of women comic artists knew and liked each other. Brinkley and King would often draw each other and took turns doing illustrations in court at the highly publicized case of the Albert Snyder murder, which I could make an entire podcast about what a Wikipedia rabbit hole. And instead of focusing on the murder victim, the husband, Brinkley and King, of course, drew the murderer, Ruth, his wife. It's all very cool. Moving right along, on to the comics of the Depression and World War II era. Unlike the early days of flappers and first wave feminism, most of the women appearing on the funny pages at this time were created by men and tended to fall into predictable categories. You'll recognize these. The lionized mother, the heavily sexualized loose girl, and the occasional femme fatale professional. My favorite of these was a character called Brenda Starr. It was a strip that followed the soap opera-y story of a reporter named Brenda Starr who had this wild romantic life and would solve crimes. It was originally conceived by a male artist, Dale Messick, but was soon taken up by women until its conclusion in 2011 and even inspired a B-movie featuring the character starring Brooke Shields back in the 90s. She's much more than a woman. Much more than your average reporter. Get me the White House, please. Are you okay? Much more than any man could handle. What do they want? You. 
And just as many of the mainstream feminist movements were gatekept by race, women who were given a platform in the early comic strip days were overwhelmingly white, with some exceptions. Enter Jackie Orms. Jackie Orms was born in 1911, grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and went on to become the first black woman to be a nationally syndicated comic artist, writing a number of popular strips over her career. Because of the deeply normalized segregation in the U.S. throughout her life, Orms's work appeared primarily in black newspapers, most prominently the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender. Her work gained a huge following and was said to reach over one million people a day. Langston Hughes even once said in the late 40s that, quote, if I were marooned on a desert island, I would miss Jackie Orms's cute drawings. That's so cool. Her first strip in 1937 and 38 was called Torchy Brown in Dixie to Heart, and it was the story of a teenager from Mississippi who became famous singing at the Cotton Club, which was a nightclub in Harlem that ran in the 1920s and 30s that ended up launching the careers of many famous black performers while still being operated under Jim Crow segregation laws. That is, it was at first a whites-only and later a segregated club. Torchy was a hit with readers immediately, and the character made a huge comeback in the 1950s with Torchy in Heartbeats, where Jackie Orms updated the protagonist as an adventurous young woman who dates around in search of true love while pursuing her dreams. Most famously, Torchy had a storyline in 1954 where she and her boyfriend, a doctor in a predominantly black neighborhood, talked about how environmental racism affected his patients after waste from a local chemical plant began to leak into the local water supply. In the studio of Jackie Orms, one of the few women cartoonists, the popular comic strip characters of Torchy and Heartbeat and Patty Joe literally spring to life. Syndicated in scores of newspapers, her cartoons reach more than a million readers each week. Torchy became a fashion icon, and not by mistake. Alongside the comic strip that Orms drew would often be a paper doll model of Torchy with several outfits, giving young black women an outlet with which to see themselves in the fashions of the day and act out their own stories with the paper doll. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. 
the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Orms' most famous work was called Patty, Joe, and Ginger, a comic strip that ran from 1945 to 1956 and consisted of two black sisters, one a chatty kid and the other a tall, lean teenager. The format was very simple. In each one-panel strip, Patty Joe, the kid, would make a comment about modern life to her sister Ginger, who never spoke. Depending on the occasion, Ginger reacted with shock or annoyance or tenderness to whatever Patty Joe says. Through Patty Joe, Jackie Orms was able to use an innocuous-seeming kids-say-the-darndest-things format to launch biting commentary on the oppression experienced by Black Americans of this time. Orms' strip from the day after the white murderers of young black boy Emmett Till were found not guilty in 1955 has been cited as one of the most important works in the strip's run. In it, Patty Jo stands in the kitchen doorway as the ever-silent ginger hides a newspaper with the news of the not guilty verdict hidden behind her back. Patty Jo says, I don't want to seem touchy on the subject, but that new little white tea kettle just whistled at me. Patty Joe was very much the star here, and it led to one of the most successful comic strip merchandising moves in the early history of comics, and a very important one. 
In addition to the Patty Joe paper dolls that appeared alongside the strip, much like Torchy, Jackie Orms oversaw the release of a Patty Joe doll between 1947 and 1949 that gave young black girls a toy of the character that many modeled their behavior on. In a toy market where very often the only representations of black women and girls relied heavily on mammy stereotypes, the Patty Joe doll was a big deal and Orms oversaw the production herself. The sharp commentary that Orms made in her work didn't come without consequences. The powers that be viewed her very much as a threat. According to Matthew Touche at the African American Intellectual History Society, the FBI had a file on Jackie Orms that went from 1948 to 1958, at the height of the Red Scare. The agency interviewed her and agents would sometimes come to follow her to the bookstore she frequented in not just a stunning waste of government funds, but an attempt to establish a connection between Orms and the Communist Party. Her FBI file was 287 pages long, longer than Jackie Robinson's file by over 100 pages. Which brings me to this panel of Patty, Joe, and Ginger from the period that Orms was under surveillance. It would be interesting to discover which committee decided it was un-American to be black. This strip, of course, is a reference to the House of Un-American Activities Committee during the Red Scare, and it makes sense why this committee was on Jackie Orms's mind in particular. Orms retired from cartooning in 1956, was a founding board member of the DuSable Museum of African American History, and was a longtime member of an antique doll enthusiast club in Chicago. Her legacy continues now through the Orms Society, an online collective that promotes Black women in the comics industry. Another icon of the Depression era was an artist named Marge Buell. She worked professionally just as Marge, love a anonymous artist, very confident. Marge was born on a farm in 1904. She worked her way up in the industry as a magazine illustrator and started the beloved strip Little Lulu in 1935, about a young girl who's known for challenging boys to prove that she can do anything they can. The comic only ran for 10 years, but Buell set the stage for women to merchandise the hell out of their most popular characters as Kathy Lederwood. Lulu outlived the strip through merchandising, through cartoon shorts in the 1940s, through an anime in the 1970s, through an HBO animated series in the 90s. Like Kathy Laterwood, Lulu was also used heavily in American commercials. She was a spokes cartoon for Kleenex tissues, for Pepsi, and she was featured in a permanent Times Square billboard for over 10 years. Get Kleenex tissues in the economy pack. And to just any tissues, you'll never turn back. For the new pack of Kleenex 400s gives more. More for your money than ever before. Like Kathy Guyswhite would be later, Marge was heavily involved in the marketing of her character, and it paid off in a huge way. She sold off the copyrights to Lulu in 1971, doing very well for herself. Little Lulu would go on to inspire Friends of Lulu, a nonprofit that ran from 1994 to 2011 to promote comic books by women and to get girls involved in making comics themselves. The 1940s also brought a series of successful strips about teenage girls, lining up pretty closely with the explosion in marketing to American teenagers. And these strips tend to be pretty lighthearted and mostly about teen girls pining over teen boys in strips like Linda Walters' Susie Q. Smith, which she wrote with her husband, and Hilda Terry's Tina. 
and Hilda Terry fought very hard to be the first woman to be accepted into the National Cartoonist Society and was finally successful in 1951. 1951! There was also wartime propaganda comic strips. Gladys Parker, who had been working back since the flapper strips in the 1920s, made the comic Betty G.I. to inspire women to get involved in American war efforts, and then went on to create a semi-autobiographical comic called Mopsy in 1939. Mopsy was a protagonist that was an absolute dead ringer for Gladys Parker herself. In a move that mirrored many American women's experiences in World War II, Mopsy worked as a munitions plant worker and a nurse in the comic strip, and then was fired from her defense job in 1947 and had to leave the workforce. Depressing. However, you should Google a picture of Gladys Parker. She's, I think, my new style icon. She's incredible. The 1950s was not a good time for, honestly, anybody. (laughs) Really anybody who wasn't a white guy in America and women's presence in the funny pages dipped. In their place came the Donna Reedified domestic goddesses that exemplified the indoctrination that set the stage for Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique to become such a hit among white middle-class housewives who had been pushed out of the workforce after the war ended. You've got Lois of High and Lois, a suburban housewife. You've got Flo from Andy Cap, the long-suffering wife who deals with her husband's womanizing and excess drinking like it's her job, which it kind of was. And into the 60s, as the civil rights movement and social unrest surrounding the Vietnam War dominated headlines, not much of this was reflected in the funny pages. For the most part, the medium was stuck about 10 years in the past. In 1968, the comic strips that took awards home at the Alley Awards for Comics were Peanuts by Charles Schultz, a soap opera strip called On Stage by Leonard Starr, and Dennis the Menace. Not exactly strips that reflected social progress, radicalism, or gains made by these movements. And that applied to the feminist movement as well. But when the newspapers wouldn't carry the radical messaging of the time, a bunch of women decided to do it themselves. Enter the underground comics movement. While the newspaper pages lagged far behind the times in the 50s into the 60s and 70s prior to Kathy beginning in 1976, another comic scene was thriving. That being underground comics. Comics with two M's and an X, by the way. A scene that was very vibrant in the US and the UK. For as long as there had been illustrated comics, there had been porn knockoffs of comic book characters. But in the late 60s, illustrators began to organize, independently publish, and create their own X-rated characters. They're basically the edgelords of the late 60s. Very much a part of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll era with its start in the early 60s with stuff like Frank Stack's Adventures of Jesus. The big thing about underground comics was that they were completely uncensored. R. Crumb, one of the most prominent artists of this movement spoke to what the scene meant in an interview from 1996. He said this. Uh, People forget that that's what it was all about. That's why we did it. We didn't have anybody standing over us saying, no, you can't draw this or you can't show that. We could do whatever we wanted. And so they did whatever they wanted. Centered in the San Francisco area at the height of free love, Crumb and company started a number of self-published comics issues full of truly some of the most fucked up things you'll ever see in your life. Zap Comics, a project helmed by R. Crumb, became a flagship publication for the movement and launched a number of artists. 
after getting its start sold on the sidewalk of Haight-Ashbury out of a baby stroller by Crumb's then-wife. So yeah, these were the edgelords of the 60s and 70s. The comics were shock-jocking hard, and not in a way that all radical artists liked. The movement was built around drawing and saying whatever you want, and consisted of almost completely white guys. Artist Grass Green was one of the only black artists involved in underground comics. And so that meant that sometimes they were just saying fucked up stuff for the sake of saying fucked up stuff. And the comics from these majority male collectives would often feature themes like incest, murder, rape, and pretty aggressive ableism. And you guessed it, misogyny ran rampant. This brings us back to Trina Robbins, the world's leading historian and women comics artist who was also at the helm of creating space for women in the underground comics movement. Robbins didn't want to get involved in Zap Comics, she wanted to start her own thing. And this was a fairly controversial move. Robbins said this of R. Crumb's work. It's weird to me how willing people are to overlook the hideous darkness in Crumb's work. What the hell is funny about rape and murder? And this resistance made a lot of sense for the time. By the late 60s, the second wave of feminism was well underway in the U.S., and by 1970, Trina Robbins had had enough of the misogyny in existing underground comics. After meeting fellow cartoonist Barbara Willie Mendez, the two decided to make their own comics and recruited other women to do it with them. Artists like Meredith Kurtzman, the daughter of Mad Magazine creator Harvey Kurtzman, like Carol Kalish, like socialist cartoonist Lissa Lyons and Michelle Brand, to make the first issue ever of women's underground comics called It Ain't Me, Babe. Here's an interview Robbins did in 2020 about her motivation to start comics of her own. I mean, for the longest time, if you wanted to draw comics, you really had two choices. One was mainstream, and mainstream, you know, the big two, Marvel and DC, was all about guys punching other guys. You know, that's basically what it was about. And this isn't something that women, and, and an awful lot of men too, this isn't something we want to draw. This isn't even something we can draw. You know, I'm not very good at guys punching each other. It's not what I do. And the, But the other alternative was the underground. But the underground was completely male-dominated, 98% male. And, and it was all about sex and drugs and rock and roll. And, you know, the sex part was extremely misogynist towards women. It was all male gaze and male viewpoint. So there was, until Babe, until It Ain't Me Babe, there was nothing really for women. So suddenly we had another kind of comic with another kind of contributors. And the cover of It Ain't Me Babe does not shy away from iconic women of the funnies pages. It references them explicitly. The cover has olive oil of Popeye, it has Wonder Woman, it has Little Lulu from Marge, remember her? It has Mary Marvel, Sheena Queen of the Jungle, and Elsie the Cow, who I guess was a, a mascot for a dairy company. And these characters are all charging together with their fists raised and furious in solidarity. The cover reads, It Ain't Me, Babe, Women's Liberation. 
and the contents are much the same. The majority see women reimagining themselves as the centered parties in fables and fantasy stories and even Sunday funnies. My favorite one of these is called Breaking Out. Artist Carol Kalish imagines the existing women in the comics banding together for world domination. Little Lulu decides to stop trying to prove to boys that she's worthwhile and strike out on her own. Supergirl gets sick of Superman's condescension. Veronica realizes that Betty is far more important to her than Archie. Petunia Pig tells Porky to cook his own dinner, and they all strike out on their own to create a women's only clubhouse. It holds up. It Ain't Me Babe was a huge success, selling over 40,000 copies from an independent printer. So early on, Trina Robbins was rightfully confident that there was a whole market for women in the underground, and in 1972 began a longer sustaining project, Women's Comics, spelled W-I-M-M-E-N. Live Nation presents Concert Week, now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. In the first issue alone, Women's Comics addresses teenage abortion, female masturbation, leaving an abusive marriage, leaving a job where a woman is being sexually harassed, and one written by Robbins herself called Sandy Comes Out, which was one of the first lesbian coming out stories in comics ever. Because they were uncensored, these strips are deeply unapologetic. Women's comics had no interest in engaging in both sidesism, and they feature women who take radical views without explaining or apologizing. You don't like that they don't want an abortion? Okay. <laughs> oh well. You don't like that she wants to leave her husband, leave her job, isn't straight? The collection offers no explanation and no apologies. A number of women whose work appeared in the pages of women's comics went on to have pretty impressive careers. There was Lee Mars, who began as an assistant on comics like Little Orphan Annie, High and Lois, and Prince Valiant, who went on to create her own radical works that embraced body positivity and queerness through her strip called Pudge Girl Blimp from 1973 to 77. There was Aileen Kaminsky, who did a comic about an insecure misfit masturbator called Goldie, Neurotic Woman. There was Diane Newman, creator of the violent and impulsive icon Dee Dee Glitz. There was Sharon Rudall, who went on to write the graphic novel biographies of famous political activists, and this was a roster that grew with each passing issue. And once again, while the collection grew more diverse in including more queer women later in its run, it remained overwhelmingly white. A lot of these comics can't really be done justice here. What you need to know is that they were unapologetic, edgy, sometimes in the right direction, sometimes in a direction that very much doesn't age well. They were explicit and they were touching on women's issues that would have been virtually impossible to do in the funny pages that they were commenting on and sometimes directly parodying. What you also need to know is that the politics of the era and the fact that there is a majority of white cis authors means that there are many comic strips that other non-white or non-cis women in a way that is offensive. The comic was designed to provide opportunities to women as time went on. The collection was not just to platform these ideas, but to provide opportunities to women comic artists as time went on, making it a point to cycle out the editors regularly to ensure that new artists and ideas and issues would be introduced. In a 1973 issue, editor Lee Mars explains what women's comics is about. The anthology of women cartoonists is intended to give support and encouragement for aspiring women cartoonists throughout the country. 
We have no desire to be an exclusive, divisive, or female chauvinist group of fear some of our friends have expressed. We do hope that publication of high-quality beginning work will give our womenist artists a chance to be seen and a foothold in the industry based on their talents of mind, hand, and eye, rather than more traditionally requested parts of their anatomy. And provide good comic entertainment for all. Women's Comics also drew a clear line between the radicals that appeared in their pages and the more liberal American feminists, women who are associated with the NOW, the National Organization of Women, or Ms. Magazine, as edited by Gloria Steinem. Women's Comics had an issue with Ms. Magazine specifically after the comics were refused ad space in the feminist magazine. Long story short, for a time, Ms. Magazine was, according to Trina Robbins, too afraid to have their magazine pulled from the shelves for, quote-unquote, advertising pornography, and the artists of women's comics were rightfully pissed. Ms. would later reverse this decision, but come on, Steinem. Here's one of my favorites from women's comics in 1973, in a strip called Reactionary Comics by Marjorie Pachetsky. The conversation is between two women. It says here that um, men are becoming quite enthusiastic about women's lib. Don't I know it. Mine just liberated me by taking up with that redhead who runs the food co-op, but I'm supposed to have his dinner ready whenever he shows up. Yeah. Come to think of it, mine sits at home while I go to work. And they still won't lift a finger when it comes to doing housework. I pay his rent. I'm not going to wash his socks, too. We could pick up a couple of losers. But the swingers around here are so low-grade, they'd probably try and snatch our purses. And when you do get down to the nitty-gritty, everyone is so liberated that there's not a bit of affection. Not to mention plain old manners. Well, we could get liberated all the way. I read this article in the New Cosmo, The Lesbian Experience. (laughs) You're a great kid and everything, but I sort of had something in mind with great big arms to put around me. This character has a thought bubble where she's thinking of a completely erect penis. The other character replies, sigh. We might as well go to the laundry room and burn our bras. When we get done, it'll be time to watch Mary Tyler Moore. Right on, sister. I'll bite my ass. This strip embodies the early issues of women's comics for me. It features two women talking in a pretty dated way about their frustrations. They have interesting talking points. They're resenting how women's liberation had been intended to free them of the demands that men put upon them, but instead empowered men to ask more of them. Now that they have jobs, why not pay his rent and cook his food? Similar topics are explored in the early days of the Kathy comics in the 1970s, where men ask Kathy to pay the check as some sort of proof of her own liberation. It's not an acknowledgement, it's a challenge. In 1975, Aileen Kaminsky and Diane Newman departed the collective due to differences in opinions on both feminism and Trina Robbins' ongoing criticism of R. Crumb, who Kaminsky was in a relationship with and is still married to today. Kaminsky and Newman started a separate women-driven comics collective called Twisted Sisters that ran from 1976 to 94 and featured pretty significant crossover with artists who appeared in women's comics. While this came out of an internal conflict, this meant that the community had actually expanded and began to provide even more opportunities for aspiring artists. However, while women's comics and Twisted Sisters were doing what quite literally no one else was at this time, 
And this space was very hard won, having been created outside of the male-dominated underground comics movement that was sometimes actively hostile to them. The issues that exist and are explored in women's comics are the same ones that surrounded the second wave feminist movement at large. Women's comics, while increasingly inclusive as time went on, remained overwhelmingly white for the duration of its run. And while women of color were included in the collections fairly often, they were more often than not written by white artists. In many cases, particularly early in women's comics run, white women draw and write black and brown characters as othered, whether it be playing into tired, exotic stereotypes of Asian and African women to set up a narrative where white women dominate or escape Western white patriarchy, or by using non-white women as side characters with no purpose but to serve as plot setup for white protagonists in the Western world. An especially interesting issue came in 1975, where women's comics observed the bicentennial of America by using women's stories and their historical erasure to tell the nationalistic display of this year to fuck off. On the cover is Betsy Ross wearing a soldier's uniform and holding a gun, but still being handed the fabric for the American flag by a general. Can you have it ready by next week, he asks. Indigenous women are acknowledged in this issue, although, as far as I could tell, no indigenous cartoonists contributed. Queen Lilio Kalani and Harriet Tubman were celebrated, the Salem witch trials were addressed, the first woman to run for president was spotlighted, the list goes on. These themed issues became a feature of the collection. We saw the work issue, the fashion issue, the occult issue, the 3D issue. I kid you not, the book came with 3D glasses and gave me a migraine. There was also the child psychology issue that explored how girls are socially conditioned to accept a whole lot of shit. Another standout was the 1990 men's issue, in which women artists put the, let's say, female gaze on issues of masculinity. Here's one last favorite of mine from the 1989 Horrible Relationships issue from Angela Bocage. Titled New Age, Same Old Shit, it parodies a shock jock radio show that shows how women have handled domestic abuse from their partners throughout the years. It starts with a woman from 1958 with a big smile and a black eye saying this. It really was thoughtless of me. Even at our family meals, I knew he wanted the plates warmed. So when I forgot when Chuck's boss was at dinner, well, maybe I was asking for this. But I can't even see it, can you? I like these new makeup formulas today. They do cover. We hear similar phrases from different women from 1968 and 1978. The final woman in the strip is from 1988 and stands with a fat lip, smiling in front of a cooing baby in a high chair. She says this. Gerald's a model husband in so many ways. It can get really stressful around here for someone who's used to an optimal office environment. And if that gets to Gerald sometimes and he acts out, well, when you consider I had a better chance of getting killed by terrorists than getting married, much less to a guy with a job well. The bottom line is... I created this reality, and I take responsibility for my life, even for getting battered, and I feel damned lucky. That terrorist statistic she's referring to is totally bogus, and the author knows it. She includes a parenthetical saying that, quote, this dubious statistic was actually reported in one of the USA's bougie's newsies to scare 80s spinsters, unquote. That bougie newsie was Newsweek. 
That dubious statistic was from a 1986 study that claimed that women over 40 had less than a 3% chance of getting married. As they put it, it was more likely a woman of that age would be killed by a terrorist than be married. This stat was repeated ad nauseum and had a hold on the culture for some time, even though it was completely fake. I remember it most clearly appearing in Sleepless in Seattle. To conclude the comic strip, the host of the fake shock jock radio show returns and says this. Okay, lots of you got it on the nose, so to speak. Betty, Shadow, Shock Treat, and Kathy all died of injuries. So remember, get hit, get out. This is women's comics and the underground movement at its best. Edgy and shocking, but also with a clear perspective and purpose. I'm very glad that these collections were made and think that their legacy is still felt today. But by 1992, over financial struggles and internal issues, the comic stopped publishing. So no, Kathy Geiswhite was far from the first woman to work in comics in a major way and never claimed to be. And maybe you've heard about some of the women in this episode before, maybe you haven't, but it's clear that the Jackie Ormses of the world, the Faye Kings, the women whose work thrived in their day in spite of pop culture history at large letting them fall to the wayside in favor of their white male cohort, were important and warrant continued discussion. The last handful of years have brought marginalized people erased from history back into focus, and the comics industry should be a part of this discussion. Basically what I'm saying is, give me my Jackie Orms biopic yesterday. In part two of this episode, we'll be looking at four comic artists working at the same time as Kathy Geiswhite, Alison Bechtel, Gary Trudeau, Aaron Magruder, and Lynn Johnston. Artists who, like Kathy, took some risks, and the way that the culture responded to those risks is telling. That's coming up Wednesday on Cast. Oh, Jesus. Pass the lean cuisine. Let's just eat chocolate, dude. And before we go, I wanted to add a mea culpa to our last episode. I quoted a writer named Robin Morgan, who a listener graciously informed me is a notorious transphobe. I was not aware. I feel very foolish for not knowing. And I apologize for the oversight and anyone that it may have upset. Fuck that. ActCast is an iHeartRadio production, hosted, written, and researched by me, Jamie Loftus. The show is executive produced by the wonderful Sophie Lichterman, edited by the wonderful Isaac Taylor, music is from Zoe Blade, and the slapper of a theme comes from Brad Dickert. Voices you heard today include my mommy, Joelle Smith, not my, my mom, comma, Joelle Smith. Joelle Smith is not my mom. It would be cool. Uh, also, Caitlin Durante and Jackie Michelle Johnson as Kathy. See you Wednesday. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Relax this Sunday with a little moment to yourself and the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love & Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love & Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.